you're joining us for the first time, we're actually looking at the very first sermon uh, in the New Testament, and that, of course, has been given by Peter. I was looking ahead at, at the book of Acts. We have so much truth, and it's going to be such a, I think, a very exciting time. And so we're working our way verse by verse. We're looking at some of the details uh, so that we can know God's Word a little better. Just as a reminder, we're still on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit has come. He's filled the believers, and then they immediately began to speak in tongues or languages, as we've learned. And the reaction of the crowd was sort of mixed. Some were very, very excited. Some were amazed and perplexed, and they were genuinely curious, wanting to know what that event meant. And of course, others blamed the whole thing on sweet wine. They accused the tongue speakers of being inebriated. So all of that up to this point has really set the stage for Peter's sermon. As we learned last time, Peter stood up with the 11 in boldness and in confidence, unlike before, raised his voice and began to preach. At this point, the miracle of tongues has passed. It did its job. It got its attention got the attention of the crowd, brought warning to the Jews because that was forecast in the Old Testament that God would use the the lips of strangers to bring warning of judgment. That's taken place. Most likely, Peter's sermon was spoken in Aramaic, which was the common language at that time. And I think last week I said Arabic. Anybody? I'm sure nobody caught that. My wife did. And so... I knew as I was saying it, it was wrong to ever have that happen, but you just can't figure out why. So it wasn't in Arabic. It was in Aramic, okay? So he's not speaking in tongues at this point, and that's significant because the gift of tongues is a sign. That sign was delivered to the audience, and of course that was the Jews. You know, ever since the Abrahamic covenant, the Jewish people have longed for the Messianic age, and, and today they're still looking for that. So they believe that when he comes, he's going to make everything right. When the Messiah comes, he's going to destroy their enemies. He's going to establish righteousness on the earth. They're going to be reestablished as God's people. So everything's going to be great. Joel's prophecy had a, had a kernel in it that probably caught their attention. And that's the phrase, the last days. We touched on that about what the last days meant. It, it meant it started at Pentecost and goes all the way to the end. But that term meant something very specifically to the Jewish audience. It meant that God's kingdom had come. Since the Messianic age began, to the Jews that meant that the kingdom had come. And Peter, citing Joel's prophecy, he revealed that Pentecost had began the last days. So in their mind, that would have triggered a shock and it would have triggered some excitement. They associated the days, the last days with Pentecost. And again, that must have been a a moment where they're looking at one another going, is he here? Has it happened? Has it begun? They thought that if the Messianic times had begun, then their Messiah must have come. The two happened simultaneously. Remember, prophetic foreshortening says that they didn't see those gaps. Everything was collapsed into one event. So they're expecting then with the statement of the last days that the messianic kingdom 
has inaugurated, it's begun, therefore their Messiah must have come. But they didn't realize that the Messiah had come. And they killed him. So, the theme of Peter's sermon then was this, that that Israel's long-awaited Messiah had come, and they need to repent and believe because he had come. And he had began the kingdom, not the kingdom they thought, which was the establishment of Christ's rule on the earth. They didn't know about the church age, so... So they, they were thinking that they were at the end of the age, and they were not. But the messianic kingdom had begun. That's why Peter introduced his sermon by giving an invitation in verse 21. After the prophecy, Joel here, and Peter picks it up, he says, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's an invitation to be saved and to believe. But who should they call on? Who is the Lord exactly? And what does it mean to be saved? Those are all questions in the Jews' mind because they thought you earned salvation by keeping the law. So this was an invitation that they really didn't understand. Well, we know the answer to who the Messiah is. It's it's the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that they just put to death. So Peter knew then that presenting Jesus as their Messiah, the one who had come, demanded some serious, compelling evidence. And so he proceeds to provide it. He gives four compelling truths that prove Jesus is the Messiah. And what he does here is he gives the gospel, and he gives it in perfect chronological order. He begins with the evidence of Christ's life in verse 22. And then the evidence of his death in 23. We'll cover both of those verses this morning. Next week, we'll look at the evidence of his resurrection from verses 24 through 32. And finally, he concludes with evidence of the Lord's exaltation in verses 33 through 36. So we have a very thorough gospel here. And I think it's worthy to note that Peter, again, establishes the model of preaching. And the pattern of preaching should be primarily focused on the gospel. I don't think every verse specifically leads to the gospel, but in the end, isn't that what this is really all about? All the miraculous signs in Joel's prophecy, all the dreams and the visions, and then all of the natural Um, changes in the world, the sun and the moon and all that. All of that is designed ultimately to bring people to the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything ultimately brings us to that point. And that's what Peter is doing here. He's talking to a group of hostile people who put Jesus Christ to death, believing that their Messiah had not come. And in fact, he had come. And now it's time to hear what Peter has to say. And he's going to explain it. He leads off a sermon then by pointing to the evidence of his life. It's evidence that they should have known. Look with me at verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, 
a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. And then he finishes, just as you yourselves know. As Peter did at the beginning of his sermon, he again demands that his audience listen. This is an imperative in the Greek, the third time that Peter has demanded that his audience listen. He's about to answer all the questions that the Jews might have, and he exploits all the error as he teaches this. He's stepping up to preach God's word with apostolic authority, and so he exalts and demands them, pay attention to what I'm saying. When a man stands in the pulpit and he preaches God's word, it demands attention, not because of the man, but because of the voice behind the man, the truth. God speaks through sermons, and he's speaking to us today. We don't want to lose sight of that. This isn't me. This is the Lord Jesus Christ talking to this body whom he bought and purchased with his blood. So he's speaking to us. And he addresses here to the men of Israel. Men here is the word aner. And it can mean two things. It can mean males, like in men, or it can be general, including women. It could go either way, but the context seems to suggest here that Peter is addressing the males. These are the men who led the way to putting Jesus on the cross. And so I think he's speaking primarily to the men. However, it's also applies, it also applies to the women as well, because we know there were women there. And the women aren't left out in the gospel here. I find it interesting that, as I mentioned last time, Peter isn't worried about bringing some sort of soft message here to warm up his believer, warm up the uh, hearers to his voice. He's not trying to find common ground here. He's coming out boldly and courageously, and he wastes no time in telling them who the Messiah is. And it had to be a shock to them that Peter says it was Jesus the Nazarene. That had to be a sobering shock to them. Probably created quite a bit of stir, quite a bit of anger in the crowd. Now, why does Peter refer to Jesus this way? Well, I think there's probably a couple reasons. First of all, Jesus the Nazarene, or Jesus of Nazareth, was the most common known name for him in those times. In his earthly ministry, that's what he was commonly known as. But secondly... It was also the name that the Jews used to mock and ridicule him. Nazareth was a little podunk city that had no significance at all. It was kind of where nobody lived. So it was kind of a community that didn't have any prestige at all. In John 1, the Pharisees said that nothing good could come out of that town. Guess where Jesus came out of? Nazareth. For them, though, it was inconceivable that their king, the Messiah, the God King, could possibly come from such a lowly place. Everything about God's plan is just backwards. Why would a king come out of Nazareth? Why would he be born in in an animal trough? 
Why would he not have kingly clothes and, and be uh, dealt with, with, with splendid, exquisite, uh, exquisitive, um, taking care of him is what I'm trying to say. A lifestyle that would be elite. So for them, that was inconceivable that he could come from such a lowly place. You might remember that this is the same title placed above Jesus while he hung on the cross. Remember it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Undoubtedly, many, when Peter said this, made the connection between seeing that sign of Jesus on the cross and what Peter says here, used by using the same title. I think it's very possible here that Peter is trying to make a connection with his audience, and then he borrowed their derogatory title to use it as a mild rebuke. You put him on the cross, mocking him as Jesus of Nazareth. That's who your Messiah is. Then Peter says that Jesus was a man attested to them by God. Apodeknumi. It's translated in the Holman Christian Study Bible as pointed out, that Jesus was pointed out by God. The NIV, I think, is a good translation. It says accredited. And if you have the King James, you notice it says approved. So this particular word has a lot of shades of meaning, which I think can be applied here. For example, in 1 Corinthians 4.9, it says that God had exhibited the apostles by putting them on display. So I think we could say here that God is putting Jesus on display so man could see him. Secondly, in Acts 25.7, it conveys the idea of offering proof. So God was offering proof to the world here that Jesus was the Messiah. Thirdly, this is interesting, it's used in 2 Thessalonians 2.4 to describe how the Antichrist will exalt himself in the temple. So Jesus here is exalted by God. So I think if we put all those meanings together, Peter is saying that God exalted Jesus by putting it on display in order to prove that he's indeed the Messiah. And the whole point of this is to show that Jesus is worthy of trust. That he truly is who he said he was. Now, how did God accomplish that then? Well, he did it by miracles, wonders, and signs. Normally, we kind of lump all those together. But I want to kind of define each one of them because it says something about how God used miracles There were 37 miracles of the Lord's recorded in the New Testament. And John 20, verse 30 tells us that there were many more that weren't recorded. So it's possible that Jesus did thousands of miracles and that thousands of people witnessed those miracles. It was the age of miracles. It happened all the time. It was going on with the apostles who represented him. Of course, he was doing them. I think the point to this is, there's friends, there's overwhelming evidence that Jesus has the power over every sphere of existence. He proved that he has power over nature, over all events. He has the power over illness, disease, and over Satan and his demons. 
He has power over all mankind. He has power over discipleship. He has power over life and death. He has power over sin. And he certainly has power over salvation. Nicodemus spoke for many when he said, when, when he said to Jesus, well, you know, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Now, what I find intriguing and amazing about the Lord's miracles, there's not a single example anywhere in Scripture where anybody ever doubted that his miracles were real. They doubted whether it was God producing them or Satan producing them, but nobody ever doubted that when God did a miracle, it was a miracle. I find that very interesting. So his miracles had an authenticating power that left no question in the mind of the observer that they were real. So there's no question. Nobody ever questioned it. Now I want you to notice that there's three words here that are involved in the Father's validation. And all three work together and cooperate with one another to accomplish God's will. The first one is miracles. Miracles, a lot of different definitions of miracles, and, and they don't, they, you got to be careful because they don't really fit all of Scripture. But I think that we can say that miracles in general are uncommon, unexpected, supernatural acts of God through which He bore witness to Himself. So miracles were spontaneous. They were unexpected. They were supernatural. In many cases, completely reversed the laws of nature. They were unique. When He turned water into wine, that was a miracle. When He heals the deaf and the blind and the, and the lepers, those are miracles. And so was speaking in tongues at Pentecost. It was a miracle. It happened suddenly, immediately, without expectation. Surprising. The second word is the word wonders. Now, wonders is different in that it describes the response of the miracles or the response to the miracles. It describes the marveling and the amazement that was generated in the mind and the emotions of those who witnessed the miracles. So you have the acts of God, it's a miracle, and then you have the marveling and the wonders and the amazement that that miracle created. It happened with tongues in Acts 2. When the people heard the tongues at Pentecost, it says they were amazed and they were astonished and they were perplexed. Those are responses that we call wonders, or that the Scripture calls wonders. So God creates a miracle, and then there's this marveling, and this shock and awe of what took place. The third word is signs. Signs have to do with the purpose or intention of the miracles. So you have the acts, the acts of God, that's the miracle. Then you have the response in the mind and the emotion and the heart of the one who sees it. And those work together then to make signs that show the purpose and intention of miracles. This is really important because when we see people claim to do miracles today, it does not fit this pattern, friends. And we need to be aware of that because we know at the end, I know I've 
warned you before, Satan is going to come along with a lot of signs, miracles, and wonders. It has to fit the biblical pattern, just like tongues. We don't go off of experience. We, we, we validate experience by what Scripture says, and that's important that we have that discernment so we're not misled. Jesus Christ, nor the apostles, ever performed a miracle without a reason. In other words, a buddy didn't come up and go, hey, Peter, um, can you move that rock? Can you just move that mountain for me? If they were asked that, they didn't do that because there was always a divine purpose for a miracle and for a sign. Signs functioned kind of like a divine finger pointing to some spiritual truth. There was purpose and there was reason. Tongues was a sign, as we know, pointing to unbelieving Israel and letting them know, hey, this is a sign, Israel. God warned about this in the Old Testament. You just got the sign. And God is warning you that you're about to be judged. And so that's the sign. The act of tongues was the miracle. The response was amazement and, and marveling. And the purpose of it was a sign to point to a spiritual truth. So here's how they all work together then. Miracles, again, were unexpected, supernatural acts of God, and these miracles created wonders or marveling or amazement. The miracles then became signs, and those signs pointed people to spiritual truths. Now, why miracles at that time? Because God was bringing forth new revelation. In those three eras, in the time of Moses and then in the time of Elijah and Elijah, and at a time of Jesus and the apostles, all of those had one thing in common. They were bringing forth new revelation. So God was punctuating that reality with miracles. And he'd create the miracle, there'd be an awe and a marveling and an amazement, and those would become signs to some spiritual truth. So, I want to point out one other really quick thing that I think is important. If you did a search on the word signs, which I did, you'll note that the term wonders only occurs in conjunction with signs. So if you looked up the word wonders, you'd find it's only associated with signs. Why? Why is wonder never separated from signs? Because it shows us that mere marvels have no value in and of themselves unless they point beyond themselves to some spiritual truth, hopefully leading to faith. Does that make sense? It's all connected. If people are simply doing miracles today, friends, you can trust this fact. It is not of God. Because God had a purpose for miracles at three, in three eras of human history. Those miracles were concentrated to authenticate the message and to authenticate the messenger. And they had a point. And that point was God was teaching new revelation. That's the connection. Today, that has no connection. 
Now, God can do amazing things in providence, but we're not in the age of doing miracles. And people always say, I'm just going to repeat it, but don't put God in a box. God can do miracles. Really? I mean, do we really have to say that? <laughs> he created the universe in a, by a word, right? I mean, he can do miracles. But that doesn't mean that's his process today during this time. Miracles had a purpose. And their main purpose was to authenticate and validate the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth that he was bringing forth. Does that make sense? If that's completed, what purpose is there today if that's why they were given? Now, what's interesting, too, is that teaching would either precede or it would follow those miracles. So when a miracle happened, there was either teaching leading up to it or there was teaching immediately following. Tongues, earlier on the day of Pentecost, is now followed by Peter's sermon of the gospel. Tongues didn't give the gospel, it was praising God. And now Peter, that's over. Peter now is explaining what that miracle was. And he said it's the inauguration of the last days. Now he's teaching about that miracle. Pentecost became a sign. And now he's teaching that. So following that now, Peter gives this sermon explaining all that took place. In John 6, the miracle of feeding the multitudes was followed by the Lord's teaching that he's what? Bread? The connection? What's connection? He offered bread. He is what? The bread of life. Again, that teaching expanded on the miracle. Think of the raising of Lazarus. That was a miraculous sign demonstrating to those that were there with him, to Martha and others, that he was teaching that he alone has power over death, that he is the resurrection of the life. Why did he do that miracle? To show that he can give life to the dead. Teaching following that miracle. Peter tells us that the Lord's miracles were performed in your midst just as you yourselves know. Why did he say that? His point was this, very simple. You can't claim ignorance. You cannot possibly claim the fact that you didn't see the truth even though you didn't believe it. They couldn't claim ignorance because everything was done right before their eyes. It was the kindergarten age of the church. Things were made visible to those so they could see it as that new revelation was being brought forth. In other words, here's what he's telling them. You cannot legitimately deny the evidence. So again, Peter's being very straightforward here. He's not trying to coddle his hearers. He's giving it to him straight up. And he's saying, look, you can't claim to not know what was going on because you saw those miracles. And a number of times after the miracle, it ticked them off. And they tried to grab him to crucify him or to put him in a jail or whatever they were going to do with him. And he kept escaping. So every time they would see something and then hear something, they'd get angry about it. The truth is, they knew exactly what was going on. 
The word know here is significant. It's in the perfect tense, and that means that they knew it in the past when it happened, and they still know it at the time Peter confronts them. The verb says something happened in the past, and it's a continuation. They knew it when it happened, and to this very day, as Peter confronts them, they know for a fact they saw the real power of God coming through the Lord Jesus. They couldn't deny it, and he doesn't let them off the hook. Again, you wonder if the other apostles are talking among the 11 going, man, he needs to chill a little bit. He's going to run these people off. We got, we got as many as 200,000 people listening to this. Peter, soften it so that you'll be accepted. You didn't do that. Apostles never did that. The prophets never did that. They gave it to him straight. That's exactly what Peter's doing. He says, you are not let off the hook. You saw the evidence. So what does this tell us, really? It tells us that their refusal to believe that Jesus is the Messiah was actually a rejection of divine revelation. What they saw was revelation by sight. Miracles brought forth revelation. They had all the light they needed. They had everything they needed. They saw it as clearly as possible, but they made a willful choice to reject the light. And that light was shining right in their eyes. And they said, no, we will not have it. We will not believe it. They committed the unpardonable sin. That doesn't have to be confusing. The unpardonable sin was that you're given all the light that you're going to get and you say, no, it's not a sin that will be forgiven. They had three years of light. They had three years of thousands of miracles bringing forth the truth to hard-hearted hearts who love darkness more than sin. And they willfully rejected that light. So they clung to their darkness. I want to draw your attention here to a, a detail that can really be easily missed Not only were they rejecting the Lord Jesus, they were also rejecting the Father. You say, well, how is that? Notice that Jesus wasn't the one producing the miracles on his own. God the Father was producing those miracles through him. It was the Father who was validating Jesus. So he's the one actually producing the miracles. Peter tells us here that Jesus was being confirmed by God by miracles, wonders, and signs which God performed through him. God the Father was behind everything. God the Father is behind everything. Everything Jesus did, everything Jesus said was in direct submission to his Father's will. It's very clear here that the Father is running everything In verse 23, God delivered Jesus over to death. In 24, God raises him up again. In verse 30, God swore on an oath to David about Jesus. In 32, again, he restates that God raised him up. In 33, he was exalted to the right hand of the Father by the Father. And in verse 36, 
God was God has made him both Lord and Christ. So God here is the unseen character behind the scene orchestrating the entire program. Now why is this important? Why is it why is it important that we know that God is performing those miracles through Jesus? Because in rejecting Jesus, they're also rejecting the Father. Jesus makes that comment a number of times. The Father sent him, and the Father was working through him to prove that Jesus was his Son. So in rejecting those miracles, they're rejecting the evidence that the Father was bringing forth clearly, and they rejected it. Often we think Jesus is producing those miracles. Well, in one sense he is, but they're, they're really God validating his Son. So he's producing them. So the evidence from the Lord's life and his power to do miracles made his Messiahship conclusive and undeniable. And that's Peter's point to his audience. The second proof that, G, that, that uh, Peter offers here is the evidence of his death. Verse 23. Now, Peter was very aware of the fact that what he had just said about Jesus of, Nazar- of the Nazarene being their Messiah raised some serious questions in the minds of the hearers. So if Jesus the Nazarene was their Messiah, and if God accredited him by the use of miracles, then why did he die as a criminal? Peter's telling him he's the Messiah, and they're thinking, I just saw the Messiah up on the cross, unrecognizable as a human being. That's our king, really? You said he came out of Nazareth? We don't. How could a Messiah come out of there? And by the way, if he's the true Messiah, then why didn't he use his power to avoid the cross? In fact, the idea is stated at the cross when they said, if you're the king of the Jews, then save yourself and come down from there. That's the taunt. In their mind, again, Jesus couldn't have been their Messiah. Their king would come in on a robe or come in on wild horses and kill all the enemies and establish all their blessings. But this Messiah, how could that possibly be? We conquered him and we crucified him. You're telling us that's our king? Well, Peter responds in 23, he says, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Peter makes it clear here because he knows in their mind, they're thinking, we just put him to death. And Peter is coming along and he's saying that you weren't the ultimate decisive cause of the Lord Jesus Christ's death. God was. It was God's will that his son be crushed for our sins. What What an unbelievable plan. 
He informs them that Jesus was delivered over by the will of the Father. It was God's idea that Jesus should be crucified. See the word delivered over? That Greek word means to give power over to one's enemies. It means to be handed over to the power and will of another. It was used in military service when somebody would be captured. They would be delivered up to their enemy. It's exactly what happened to Jesus. And so his point here is that the father handed his son over to enemies so that he could become the savior of the world. What a plan. What a plan. By the way, the Lord's enemies had absolutely no ability on their own to put Jesus on the cross. No ability. In John 19.11, Jesus told Peter, he said, you'd have no authority over me unless it was given to you by the Father. By the way, we can claim that same reality. Nobody has authority of us unless it's granted by God. In John 10, 17 and 18, Jesus himself said, no one took his life because the Father had given him the authority to lay it down and to raise it up. Nobody ultimately took the Lord's life. Remember how he died. He gave up his spirit. Nobody in this room can do that. We can take our own life, but nobody can voluntarily just give up their life. But Jesus did. Because nobody ultimately had authority over his death. So the ultimate cause then of the Lord's crucifixion wasn't the wicked scheming of the Jews. It was that his death was predetermined. The Greek word here, horizo, is where we get the word horizon. And that comes from that Greek word. And it means to mark off or to delineate something. I like this translation, to map it out. In this context, it means that God pre-planned and pre-arranged the crucifixion to take place. If you come from an Arminian background, which is more of the man-centered theology, you're going to struggle with this. But I got, when I got through this morning studying, I just I bowed my head and I said in my heart, God, it's so crystal clear. You're in charge. You have final authority and everything's been determined. Can we believe that? Can we really believe that everything has been determined? God can't be a little sovereign, friends. So it's pre-planned. Peter gives a little more detailed explanation of it over in chapter 4, verses 27 through 28. It says, For truly in this city there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And then notice what Peter says, verse 28. To do whatever your hand and purpose, what? 
predestined to occur. So what did God's hand predestined to occur? That the Jews and the Gentiles and all the peoples would come together and work against Jesus in order to put him on the cross. The whole thing was horizoed. The whole thing was mapped out. The whole thing was set in place. Everything that ever happened on that day was prearranged so that Jesus could be put to death. Not only was the cross prearranged, but so was the result. Look at 2 Timothy 1, 8-9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, His prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel, according to the power of God. There's a thought. Let's join together in suffering for the gospel. He says in verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. That's the effectual calling. That's the drawing calling. That's the calling that wakes up the heart. Not according to our works. Couldn't be any clearer. But according to His own purpose and grace, which He granted us in Christ Jesus from what? From all eternity. You cannot deny the sovereign work of God over salvation. So God's own purpose and grace toward the elect was prearranged when? In eternity past. By the way, even those who won't believe was marked out and mapped out in eternity past. Look at Revelation 13.8. All who dwell on the earth will worship Him. He's speaking here of the Antichrist. There's going to come a point when the Antichrist arrives in the tribulation where all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Then he defines what that means. Everyone whose name has not been written, notice, from the foundation of the world. Where? That's when. In the book of life, in the book of life of the Lamb, who has been slain. Those who will be saved and those who won't be saved were mapped out and prearranged and predetermined before creation. I don't know how people can deny that. They're they're denying the, the clear, unbiased interpretation of God's Word. Not only was Jesus' death prearranged, it was brought about by God's foreknowledge. Prognoses. This word is really misunderstood by a lot of Christians. Many Christians believe that God's foreknowledge means that He knew things ahead of time and that He saw things ahead of time, but it's just simply foresight. They would say prognosis is is just God looking down and going, oh, I see where Mark's going to believe, and I see where Billy's going to believe, and I'll work that into my plan. That's That's not the word here. That's not what that means. God is never, 
ever, ever presented as a mere onlooker where he looks at future events and then chooses to act on them. Never. There's not a hint of that in Scripture. That's man's interpretation. That's man's eisegesis into the passages because that's what man wants to see. It's not there. This word does not mean that. It has a far more significant meaning. The word foreknowledge means to foreordain. God decrees His will ahead of time, not looking to see what will happen. It's not determined on any future yes or no. And it's determined in such a way that nothing can change or thwart the outcome. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say because I think this is important. For God to know something beforehand makes it a certainty. God can't know something and it be uncertain. Now he may see the the different options, but he sees those with clarity. God's omniscience can never be separated from his sovereignty. They have to go together. God's providence and His sovereignty is not together with fatalism. The two can't possibly go together. Peter is strongly asserting here that Jesus Christ was delivered over to death by God's omniscient, predetermined, eternal will. Now friends, if that's not true, then all the Old Testament messianic claims of the Lord's death are only speculative possibilities and not certainties. In other words, if everything isn't determined, all those Old Testament prophecies and all those Old Testament messianic claims are just mere possibilities. But that's not true. Take Isaiah 53, for example. He says, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him smitten, smitten of God and afflicted. And he was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and the chasing for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. I want you to notice something about this passage. All the verbs are translated into past tense. Our griefs he bore. Our sorrows he carried. We esteemed him stricken. He was afflicted. He was pierced. He was crushed. Our chastening fell on him. All of those are in the past tense, and these verbs are called prophetic perfects. When you read prophecy, it's typically in the past tense, and here's why. Because those prophecies are so certain to occur that they're stated as if they've already taken place. That's how certain it is. God is speaking to Israel hundreds of years in Isaiah's time before the crucifixion 
and he's speaking as if it had already taken place because it was so certain. The events of the cross weren't mere speculation or possibilities. They're certainties because of God's foreknowledge. Not only his foresight, but his ordaining of those facts. So there's no way that God just looked down and saw a possibility and saw it happen and to see it take place and then work it into his plan. No way. Jesus was crucified by an eternal, pre-arranged, determined will of God. Now, I want to show you one other thing. And I normally don't do this. I've done it a couple of times recently. But I want to show you something that's a little academic. So if you're bored with that stuff, just get the principle of what we're teaching, okay? And here's why it's important. Because it, it aids in our interpretation. It helps us understand whether what we're saying here is true. And it's called the Granville Sharp Rule. We talked about it in our elder meeting the other day. Peter wrote that this man is delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So here's what this means. When two nouns are joined by the word and, and the first noun has a definite article the in front of it, and the second does not, then we know that both nouns refer to the same thing. Both nouns refer to the same thing. So the Granville Sharp rule then by the grammar, we know that the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God work together to bring about the crucifixion. His foreknowledge and his predetermined will. Both of those things guarantee the outcome. Paul applies the same idea to our salvation. Look at Romans 8, 29 and 30. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Same two words. To become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So again, God's foreknowledge and his predestination work together to guarantee with absolute certainty that Jesus would be the firstborn among many. It was not a possibility that there would be no many. God wasn't going to be the firstborn of nobody. It was a guarantee. This becomes crystal clear in verse 30, where he says, And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Listen, friends, it's impossible for God to foreknow those who will be saved and them not be predestined, called, justified, and glorified. All those certain realities flow from his foreknowing. It's a guarantee. And notice that these realities are so certain that they're written as if they've been completed already. All the verbs here are translated, again, in the past tense. This is the unbreakable chain that begins with God's foreknowledge. Even Jesus was foreknown. 1 Peter 1.20 says, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So Jesus here wasn't just known by God, he was chosen by God to arrive when he did. 
Now, there's a tension here that we should all be familiar with and we should all embrace. The fact here that Jesus was delivered over to death by God's prearranged plan, listen, does not absolve those who put Jesus on the cross. Look at verse 23. He says, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Again, Peter doesn't back off here. He's, he's courageous and he's bold and, and yet he's loving. And he points his finger in the face of the listeners and he tells them, you're responsible for murdering Jesus Christ. You're responsible for putting your Messiah to death. They might be saying, well, but the Jews didn't crucify Christ. The Romans did. Well, you would be right. The Jews didn't physically put Jesus on the cross. It was carried out by the hands of godless men. Who were they? Well, they were the Gentiles, specifically the Roman soldiers. Those men here were godless, animas. It's the same word used in 2 Thessalonians 2.8 for the Antichrist, who's described as the lawless one. These men were of Satan. The point is, is that it was God's prearranged will that he would use the Jews to deliver Jesus over to the lawless Roman soldiers who would fulfill God's will by crucifying the Lord Jesus. So we have to ask then this question, who killed Jesus? How many would say the Jews did? How many would say the Gentiles did? How many would say God did? How many of you would say all did? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Peter again here presents a truth that we should be very comfortable with here at East Point, and that's God's sovereignty and man's responsibility lay side by side. One does not cancel out the other. The paradoxical truth is affirmed all over Scripture. Take Judas, for example, in Luke twenty-two, twenty-two. For indeed, the Son of Man is going, and it will be determined as it is determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Jesus' betrayal here had been determined. That's the word horizo, predetermined. Then Luke adds, but. But it was also true that Judas would face a woe, which would be judgment for his betrayal of Christ. God's sovereignty is never a legitimate excuse for human guilt. Both stand side by side. So I think it's pretty clear here from our text, by the testimony of our Lord's life and His death, it's evident that Jesus is the Messiah. But there's something else here that I want to draw your attention to And something that may not be quite as clear, but it is astounding. It's really an important point. Who is Peter preaching to here? The Jews. Back in verses 5 through 11, Luke mentions that these were devout Jews from 15 different regions. And then at the beginning of his sermon in verse 14, Peter addresses the crowd as men of Judea. And we know, of course, that Joel's prophecy was originally given to the Jews, and, and, and Peter reapplies it to the Jews. 
Again, in verse 22, Peter addresses the men of Israel and that they had no excuse not to believe. And he repeats that five times throughout the scriptures, calls them men of Israel. In 29, Peter calls them brethren because they were related ethnically. 36, Peter addresses them as the house of Israel. And finally, in verse 37, they, being the Jews, were pierced to the heart and asked their brethren, the Jews, what they should do. So what does all this mean? And why is it significant that we see that this first sermon was addressed to the Jews by Peter? It means one simple but life-changing truth, and that's grace. That's grace. So how do we see grace here? What we learn here is that the very first sermon in the church age is the greatest illustration of grace in the entire Bible. Right here. The church age just began. And the gospel is go to, the, to go to the Jews first, and that's exactly what happened here. It's grace what we see. In an age of grace, they're recipients of that grace. Think about it. Peter offered the gospel of free grace to those who committed the greatest sin in human history. They executed their Messiah. And God has given them a chance to believe, to repent, and to change, and to get it right. They willfully rejected a massive amount of light, and yet God gives them one more chance. And that's grace. What about you? There's grace for you. You and I are no worse than those Roman soldiers who, who struck Jesus and beat him half to death. We're no worse than the Jews who connived and orchestrated the whole thing to take place. Friends, grace is wide, and no matter what you've done, no matter how bad your life is, no matter what a mess your life is, or how you've rejected God, or what you have done, there's plenty of room for you in the kingdom because of God's grace and His love. Will you receive it? Will you take that grace upon your life? I love that first song we sang this morning. That's going to be a, one of my favorites, I think. Strong song. If God doesn't hold on to us, there's no hope. It's grace. And I'm hoping that you've believed in grace, not by works, so that you can't boast. What an incredible sermon. By the way, 3,000 do get saved, a very small proportion of probably around 200,000 that were there. But some believe. I hope that'll be your choice. That you believe, that you repent, you turn from your sins. Father, we thank you for this truth today that's making it so crystal clear that Jesus is who he said he is. He is the Messiah. And you validated that by the powerful miracles that nobody doubted. And that you killed your own son for us. There's no other God that would do that. 
thank you for that truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.